All right, are you ready? All right. So let's start and welcome everyone to Golden Beer Talks to the February 11th, 2014 edition of Golden Beer Talks. And, um, you know, this is still a new thing, so we're still figuring out how this all works. And thank you all for coming. Uh, tonight, we have Dr. John Spear here to talk with us. And we are featuring Barrels and Bottles Beer. And, of course, we're here at Windy Saddle. And also our media sponsors are Radio Golden and Golden.com. So that's, that's what's helping put this on, and then a few of us that are very disturbed, and we are trying to organize these. So Dr. John Spear is here to talk about rocks, rust, and fish, why microbes matter. And he's an associate professor at the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. He got his BA in Physiology and Biochemistry at UC San Diego, and his MS and PhD at School of Mines. I guess I should also mention he's my next-door neighbor, and I think that's a wonderful job he's doing as a next-door neighbor. He's an environmental microbiologist looking for the kinds of microbes in any number of environments from hot springs and Yellowstone to what is inside the average beer, and he is going to circle back to the beer. And speaking of beer, tonight it's barrels and bottles from right, across, or right around the corner here on 12th Street opposite the... Uh, our 1930s post office. Uh, we are featuring a different craft brewery every month, and we're cycling through the ones in Golden, and maybe we'll go elsewhere as well. But Barrels and Bottles, they've got many beers on tap, and then they've got about half a dozen of their own brews. These two are their own brews. It's Uncle Judd's Oatmeal Stout, which they just tapped yesterday. And it's between an oatmeal stout and a strong export stout. It's a full-bodied, roasty, and it's stuffed with chocolate flavors. And it, it's really very creamy. Uh, it's a smooth drinker with flavors of dark chocolate, coffee, smoked caramel, and oats. It's got 45 IBUs, international bitter units, and the Vanguard hops merely lend balance to the beer. And unlike a lot of the oatmeal stouts, it's 8.1% alcohol, AB, ABV. Pretty high in alcohol for a, for a stout. The IPA is kind of the opposite end. The, the IPA that they have here is Einhorn is Finkel IPA, which comes from Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. And so I had to watch the movie because when I ordered it, people started laughing. And I was like, what I say? It's German. I don't understand it. But anyway, it's from Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. It's a full balanced and crisp IPA, kind of circa 1995. A little lighter, not quite so alcohol. It's got 70 IBUs, so it's not as bitter as a lot of IPAs, and it's 5.4% alcohol, so pretty low from my standards for an IPA. It's got light flavors of bread and caramel, and it drinks easily. Um, also has flavors of grapefruit, citrus, and a slight lingering bitterness, characteristic of an IPA. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. John Spear, He'll talk for about 20 minutes. We'll break briefly. We can get more beer, whatever, wine, food, and then we'll come back for questions and answers after our little break. And then they're trying to close up the cafe by about 8 p.m. Thank you all very much for coming. And we'll have another one next month, and I forget who it is. Who do we have for? Mike City Manager Mike Bester. Oh, how could I forget? Uh. <laughs> 
<laughs> Second Tuesday of every month, Golden Beer Talks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being my neighbor. Uh, yeah. Frank, thank you for the introduction and thanks for having me be here. Um, so, as Frank said, I'm an environmental microbiologist and I think about small things everywhere. And so, that's what I do. And I want to tell you a couple of stories about things that I work on and things I think about. I think my title was Rocks, Rust, and Fish. And I'm probably going to eliminate the rust and focus on beer. So we're going to go with rocks first. <laughs> but what's good about what I do is that I need to share a couple of things with you. And that is, is that um, this field of environmental microbiology, so I'm not, a I'm not a clinical microbiologist, although I think about bacteria that invade our bodies and, and how they affect us and make us sick. I tend to think about why is a hot spring in Yellowstone National Park orange? Or why is it green? Why are there colors around things? And what does that mean? And what is that composed of? But the beauty of this field of environmental microbiology is that we have a favorite drink, which is beer, because it's made by microbes, yeast, right? Saccharomyces cerevisiae, named after beer, which is good. We also have a pet, and the pet is this. This is something called a Winogradsky column. And I'm going to pass this around. And what this is, is this is mud, just from a pond. And if you let this mud, I'm probably shining this light in your eye, if you just let this sit in a windowsill with sunlight, it starts getting all these spectacular colors. And so I'll pass this around with the light. There you go. And I'll also pass around, if you'd like to make one, it's really easy. If you like to play in the mud or never got over that, it's the ultimate pet because it requires no care and feeding. It needs water occasionally. Sometimes it burps. Sometimes it does other things. Uh, and it, sometimes it leaks. But, you know, that's just like, a, you know, I'm describing a baby, right? And so uh, it's something to think about. And it's just a wonderful thing to, to just grow microbes and see what their colors are and what they can do. When this bottle goes around, you'll see green on top and pink on the bottom. Green on top is from photosynthesis. The pink on the bottom is from things that like to live with no oxygen. And, and this sheet of paper will explain a little bit of that. Okay, so before I begin or get into this, I want to describe, if you want to discuss anything, it helps me to have a map. And my map is this. So I've got one arm behind my back. I've got one arm up in the air. I've got three fingers out. And I've got two legs. And I just described the tree of life. The tree of life is composed of three domains of life. They're the eukaryotes, which is my arm. And then there are the bacteria, which is one of my legs. And there are the archaea, which is another one of my legs. And the three fingers up here represent three kingdoms of eukaryotes that we know. One of them would be animals. We are eukaryotes. We are animals. One of them is plants, and one of them is fungus. And fungus is important because that's where yeast come from, to make beer, right? And so actually by mass, this is really probably not an unfair representation in that the mass of my thumb represents all animals on the planet. The mass of my index finger represents all plants on the planet. The mass of my middle finger represents all fungus. And then I've got the rest of me, which is bacteria and archaea. So the bulk of life on the planet is probably bacteria and archaea in terms of cell number and cell mass. And that's an important thing to think about. 
And the amazing thing about that is, is the only thing that really has skeletons are the animals. And you could argue that the plants, they kind of linger around for a while. And so those things can provide a record of what life or the history of life has been like on this planet. So having said this, it's like I'm an evolutionist. And I think about deep time. And I think about when did the Earth start? And when did life start on Earth? When did photosynthesis happen? Probably 2.8 billion years ago. But the problem is, is that microbes, bacteria and archaea, do not leave a fossil representation of themselves. And so to understand life in deep time, you have to look at things like rocks. And the thing I want to pass around for a rock is this. So this is the slice of a stromatolite. This is from the Green River Formation uh, up outside of Rock Springs, Wyoming. And if you get this wet, you can kind of see it in pretty good color. And I'll pass this around. So what this is, this is a 50 million year old rock. It's a 50 million year old rock that was made by microbes on the shore of an ancient lake the Green River Formation up outside of Rock Springs, Wyoming, which is also host to a lot of shale, which is good for natural gas and shale oil and that sort of thing. But the rocks are spectacular and they form these mushroom shapes that grow. And so they're a laminated rock. And if you go to a hot spring in Yellowstone National Park, you can see microbial mats around Grand Prismatic Spring, for example. And, and microbial mats tend to be these laminated layered things like lasagna. And they're very much alive and they're very much metabolizing today. But this is, you could think of as a fossilized lasagna from 50 million years ago. And it's a beautiful thing to look at. It's something that you try to extrapolate and, and tell a story about life. And so to tell a story about life, is like that's only 50 million years old, only 50 million years old. Here's another one. This stromatolite is a little ball and it has the same mushroom growth uh, that kind of form these domal structures. This one is 2.4 billion years old. Wow. And this is from Bolivia. And it's the exact same process. And having just seen the layered rock go by, which is from the Green River Formation, when you look at this little sphere that goes around, you're going to see the same kinds of things. The, the slab rock is kind of big, big mushrooms, like portobello size, right? This one's little mushrooms, like little shiitakes and type, type growth. And so it's much older, but it records the same kind of thing. We know from examination of studies of rocks like this that probably photosynthesis started about 2.8 billion years ago. And this rock is from 2.4 billion years. So photosynthesis was happening. It was really cranking. It was making these domal structures that grew. And what they do is they grow by like cyanobacteria. There's a photosynthetic microorganism that many of them are filamentous. And the filaments will go up during the daytime and wave at the sun. And then at nighttime, they lie down flat. And then the next day, they stand up again. And so when you look at this in a microscope or a thin section of these rocks, you can see things that are light layers and things that are dark layers. Things that are lighter layers were things that were fossilized in a standing up position. Things that are dark layers were fossilized in a lying down position because they're kind of denser. And so you get this growth that forms by light, by night by light, by night, and then you can record what this does. So we're actually looking at a living, growing stromatolite in Yellowstone National Park, and we produced some works on this, thinking about this sort of thing and how it ties into the rock record. And for anybody who hasn't been to Yellowstone, I always say, you have to go there before it comes to you. Because Yellowstone, 
is one of the world's biggest volcanoes. It's a super volcano. And when you go there, you're driving on top of a volcano. Hasn't gone off in about 600,000 years, but when it does, it's going to greatly alter the planet. And people say, like, what would you do for a natural disaster? If it were me, I would drink beer. Because <laughs> there is no sense in going anywhere. You could flee Golden or flee Denver and wait for the lava to get here or, or try to get away from it. Drink beer and just watch it come. I think that's probably the better way to go. You know, it's, that's, that's what I would do, you know? And so that's why these things are all related, right? So you got to go to Yellowstone. It's 10 hours away, door to door from Golden to there. And I go there frequently. And the reason why we go to Yellowstone is not only are we trying to figure out the rocks, we're trying to figure out why does life happen at high temperature? Why does life happen in hot springs? What drives that life? And so it's kind of a marriage of geochemistry with microbiology, and we tell stories by combining the two. And we do this in Yellowstone quite a bit. So Yellowstone could be thought of as an extreme environment. And you think about an extreme environment filled with extremophiles. There are things that like to live uh, in an extreme place like a high temperature hot spring. But really, you know, we are an extremophile too because we like to sit on a couch, drink beer, <laughs> right? Breathe oxygen, get bombarded by electromagnetic radiation from a television. And you have all these things. And if you asked a microbe, look at that human sitting there doing that, you're crazy, right? You're just as extreme as I am. And so it's kind of an anthropocentric term. And it's one of those terms that's like, oh, it's, it's fun to think about and look at, but we know we are equally as extreme as them. And that's my point. So we look at Yellowstone, we look at rocks, and we try to understand deep time, we try to understand evolution, and that's great. But how does this apply to modern day problems of humans? And there are two things that we look at, and I'll touch briefly on. Has anybody ever cut open a pipe or seen a pipe that's been in place in a 100-year-old house or a 150-year-old house? When you cut open a pipe, it's often you can't see through it. You can take a 12-inch section of pipe and look through it, and you can't look through it. And it's because it's all corroded on the inside. Well, that's basically a mineralized corrosion made by microbes. Microbes like to sit there and eat on the pipe. And as they eat on the pipe, and they'll, and they'll consume products that are going by in the water, like carbonates, and they'll make a corrosion product. And that corrosion product interferes with infrastructure in the US. This is true for rebar and a bridge deck. It's true for ships, rail cars, cars, anything that's made out of metal. And metal, as a substance, is thermodynamically unstable. Metal wants to do one thing. All metal wants to return to the ore from which it came. And one way it gets there is microbes help it get there by consuming it. And so high-strength steels are made out of iron and manganese. And you can have different kinds of organisms that prefer iron or prefer manganese. And they'll lay down on the surface of the pipe, and they'll preferentially chow on the manganese particle versus the iron particle because they're a manganese consumer, or vice versa. And so what you get from that is consumption of the steel. And this is a problem because uh, it makes bridges and ships and cars and rail cars wear out. It makes the um, Alaskan pipeline that carries oil from Prudhoe Bay to Valdez collapse because microbes eat that. And when it collapses, it causes a catastrophic failure that sprays oil all over the place. And you can blame it on the microbes. You know, and this has happened. And you can epoxy coat rebar, for example, that goes into a bridge deck. When you see them building the new bridge right over here above, um, on 58, above Ford Street, they're putting in rebar that's kind of a green color. And that green color rebar is actually epoxy coated. And I just look at that as, it's just slowing the bugs down. 
because there are microbes that want to eat the epoxy. So the first, the first passers will come and eat the epoxy. The second passers will come and eat the steel. And so you just kind of delay the inevitable. And this is what's going to happen on that bridge probably within 100 years. It'll have to be replaced again, right? And that's part of the process of life and trying to maintain all this. Another thing that we think about uh, is a project we've been working on uh, with a brewery up to the north called New Belgium Brewing. They make fat tire beer and several other kind of beers that are up in Fort Collins. So when you make beer, you make a lot of fluid that um, goes out the back door. And that fluid has to be treated in a wastewater treatment plant, much like Coors treats the city of Golden's wastewater treatment plant. The beauty of New Belgium Brewing, though, is that there's no toilet water going into that wastewater. It's beer water, or it's beer. It's, it's product water coming out of the production of beer. And so when you use microbes to chow on that wastewater before it gets discharged to the city of Fort Collins publicly owned treatment works to meet a discharge limit, because this is by EPA and Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment Standards, um, microbes will chow on the carbon in that water and they'll make a microbial biomass. And I kind of go like this because it kind of floats to the surface of their ponds. And so they have a very active process wastewater treatment plant up there, and so does Coors. Coors has one right here too, but Coors process wastewater tra treatment plant also happens to receive toilet water. What we like about New Belgium is it gets no toilet water. And the beauty of that is that you can take this microbial biomass and you can collect it and you can dry it down and make pellets out of it and use it as a source of protein for farming fish. When you, when you farm fish in a sport called aquaculture, you're growing salmon um, or trout or tilapia or you name it. And when you, when you grow fish in the form of aquaculture, you're feeding fish fish. It's not a sustainable thing because you, you have to get smaller fish to feed the bigger fish. So what a few of us wanted to do was take this microbial biomass and see how fish do growing on protein that's sourced from microbes rather than sourced from another fish. And it turns out fish really do pretty well with this, particularly tilapia, salmon, shrimp, those sort of things. Would you want to have 100% microbes be your protein for your farm fish? Probably not. You get a smaller fish as a result, and a smaller fish is harder to bring to market. So what we want to do is get like to 50 to 75%, what we call single-cell protein, that would feed these farmed fish. And this project is kind of cooking along. We have a startup company that's out at the Health Science Center that's worked on this or continues to work on this, but it's being a battle because uh, if you are in different parts of the world and you're using protein that was sourced from a brewery processed wastewater treatment plant, just the fact you've got the word brewery in there is not good because alcohol can be bad in some parts of the world. And so people associate bacterial biomass that it came from a brewery, which is not necessarily, they're not really related. They just happen to be treating the water for it. So we hope that within five or 10 years, this will actually go somewhere. Will it? I don't know. You know, it's a gamble. We're trying to figure out how best to use this biomass to do what we do. And then another project we're doing with beer is that just last Monday night, I was up uh, at a brewery at an undisclosed location, which might be a similar name to the one I just called out a while ago. Um, um, so we, what we want to do is we want to sample beer at every stage of its production because 
you can think that yeast is important for making beer, and it is, but what are the bacteria and the archaea that go along for the ride? And so, you know, a beer is actually a biochemical stew. And that biochemical stew has all kinds of tastes, like oatmeal stout or IPA or a lager or you name it, the beers that we like. And so who makes that beer? You think about the yeast as being the responsible thing. But there are a lot of things that go along for the ride that impart flavors by the compounds that they metabolize or work to make the beer. And so this brewery that we're working with, they want to understand this basic question. And everything that I've just described to you is how we do this is the first question we ask is, who is there? And from the who is there standpoint, you get an idea of, are there eukarya there? Are there bacteria there? Are there archaea there? And then once you start understanding who is there, then you start thinking about who's turned on, who is active, what are they doing? What kind of products are they making? And that's the sort of thing that we're going to work on with these beer samples. So last Monday night, I was up filtering a bunch of beer samples until my filters got plugged. We'll bring them down here to School of Mines. We extract DNA and RNA out of those filters in a chemical, physical process. So we destroy cells, we open them up, we take their DNA out, and we sequence it. And when you sequence that, you get at who is there. And this was all started by this guy named Carl Woese. Carl Woese was a professor at the University of Illinois Urbana. In 1977, he was the first person to describe the third domain of life, which was the archaea. And he did this by sequencing DNA. And he was a visionary in 1977, and he allows us to go after these targets and, and ways of working with all this. And you know, I just threw out DNA and RNA and who is there. And is this hard? It's not really hard. If you understand what DNA is as a biological macromolecule, you're 75% of the way to working in my lab because then you can understand how can I sequence that DNA and understand it. So Carl got onto this in 1977, and he has led the world into this new direction where we're really going to understand disease at a new way, a new level. And so for example, I had a strep throat a year ago, and I got the throat swab. And I, got the, and I got the positive test, and I said, okay, I, John has a strep throat. If it were me in my lab, I would like to take that swab, and I'd like to pull the DNA out of it, and I'd like to understand who's there in the swab, because while it might be a streptococcus that's making my strep throat a strep throat and you know, my neck this big and all that, there's probably other things that are associated with that. And so you can start to under, understand infection at a whole new level by asking who is there. And so when you start thinking about that, it's going to change the way we look at human health. It's going to change the way we look at animal health. It's going to change the way we look at doorknobs. It's going to change the way we look at beer. And, and that's all great. I think, in my mind, like, you know, computers changed the world uh, 20, 30 years ago. This is right now is the 30th anniversary of Macintosh commercial at the Super Bowl. And that device or that instrument really changed the world. I think 30 years later, the power of computation combined with the power of DNA sequencing is going to allow us to change the world to a new level that we don't even know yet. Most of us in this room will have our genomes sequenced. And when you have your genomes sequenced, who has control of that information? Because it's a big encyclopedia of information. And whenever I walk into a Yellowstone hot spring or a rusty pipe or a fish food place or a beer, I'm pulling out all the genetic information from that point in time for that beer. And so 
the people that you know own this brewery, they're pretty progressively thinking it's like, wow, you know, we're kind of giving John the keys to the castle, and that's kind of a scary place to be. But think about it if it was your genome, or think about it if I'm the insurance company watching your genome, and we have all these complexities in the world and technologies driving us to levels that have never been seen before in human history. And what's not keeping up with those levels are regulations and that sort of thing. And these are things I also think about while I'm working on a rusty pipe. Because we're trying to understand how that pipe rots. But how that pipe rots, every sequence that we pull out of that pipe, or pull out of that hot spring, or pull out of that beer, we feed into databases. And those databases allow us to better understand the picture of life altogether. How many different kinds of bacteria are there? We think there's 135 different kingdoms of bacteria. We think there's probably at least 70 archaea, but these numbers are 2014 numbers and they're going to change. And when you find a kingdom of bacteria, like I grew up with the five kingdoms of life, which is total hooey. Uh, <laughs> and so the five kingdoms of life were plants, animals, fungus, protists, and monera. This was an antique term and I've just disregarded all that. So we want to think about the three domains of life, you know, the bacteria, the archaea, and the eukarya, and each one of those domains, there are hundreds of phyla or hundreds of kingdoms of life. And those, any, whenever you find a new kingdom of bacteria, which might come from this beer or might come from the rusty pipe, it's kind of equivalent to walking out your door and finding plants for the first time or animals for the first time. It's that level of diversity. And then you start thinking about how am I going to understand that plant or how am I going to understand that animal? And so the beauty of the job that I do and what I like is while I train students to do all this, it gives us job security and it's one of the funnest things that I've ever done in my life to think about that. And besides, we get to drink beer. That's all I have to say. So does anybody have any questions? So the question is, is, do microbes eat stainless steel as well? And stainless steel will get these little rust spots on it. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, it, so it depends on the amount of chrome in a stainless steel. The, the chrome composition can vary um, within fractions of a percent. And chrome, it can be lethal to many kinds of bacteria as a bactericidal element. And uh, so it's, if it's a high-grade stainless steel, it takes forever for, like, microbes to chow on it. If it's a low-grade, they'll go right to town on it. Um, Coors put in a pretty sizable stainless steel infrastructure that was of good quality. And then when they changed a uh, batch processing plant, they put in a lower-grade stainless steel that rotted fast, like within two years. And that was an expensive problem. Yeah? John, one other comment about stainless steel. It needs an oxidizing environment. Bury it in the ground if it goes anaerobic, it will rot pretty quickly. Excellent. Perfect observation. Yep. You know, we, we pay him. Seriously? That's what the guy said. Wow. 
I don't know if you are seamless, but the, uh, the small stuff. The small stuff on top. Yeah. Oh, I'll have to check that out. I got to go over there. Okay. That's great. That's great. Uh, any, what you got? I started thinking when you talked about the rebar, if there's a way to you know, use microbes to, to, to protect the steel. Is there any way that? Great question. So, could you use microbes to protect steel? So, like natural gas pipelines that are put in everywhere that are made out of metal, they use electricity. They call it cathodic protection, so they'll charge it. And um, there's a biofilm that lays down on steel, and the idea behind charging it is that you're going to scare the microbes off or, or fry them off, which I don't think is true because there's new evidence now that microbes are actually, they put out little appendages where they talk to each other by electron flow. So they have these little filaments. They're called nanowires. And so it's actually, people think about how the human brain got wired to electrically communicate with across cells. It probably started in the microbial world where you have a network of microbes in a biofilm and they have connections between them that pass electrons. And so could you use that network to protect it as a protective biofilm? And I think you could. And the best example of a protective biofilm, if you could take what's in a human mouth on human teeth and apply that towards a pipeline. Because the microbes of your teeth, you know, there's over a thousand different species of things living in the typical human mouth. And so all those things are there. Um, sorry. <laughs> it is what it is. Um, um, but those things are all there, and they're actually forming, they're, they're part of the function of your mouth, you know? And when that, when that, if you think of it as an ecosystem that gets out of, out of whack or gets disturbed because you ate, you know, 18 Snickers bars a day for the last 20 years, and then now you have no teeth. Um, that was a joke, but, you know, you're, when you change the community of the ecosystem or the ecosystem function, you're going to change the health of the mouth. And so that's where, like, anything in moderation applies. But why not take that same principle and apply it to either the outside or the inside of a pipe and have a protective biofilm? And I think that's a direction of research needs to go. And we were just talking about like drinking water distribution systems because a drinking water distribution system, if you take a pipe, like a PVC pipe, and you cut it in half, you'll see these mineral layers on the inside. And those mineral layers are controlled by the chemistry of the distribution system. But why not manipulate it not only for the chemistry of the distribution system, but the microbes? So if you work those things together, maybe you make a stromatolite, so to speak, a layered lasagna microbial mineral mat sort of thing with inside the pipe and understand how to better control that yeah. or how to better work with that. And I think there's a lot that you could do with that. I need the U.S. government to give me $100 million and I'll solve that problem, right? Yeah. So I have heard about that. Um, there's a friend of mine named Mitch Sogan. He's at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And he came out with a paper a couple of years ago called the, the Rare Biosphere. When you look at any environment from a DNA perspective like what I do, you have dominant members, and then you have what we call the endless tail. And the endless tail is like singletons. There's something that's only present as one cell. 
or two cells. If you have an E. coli in a biofilm that's there, that one cell could give you a positive coliform test, even though there's only one of them there. And so if you've got this abundance of 10 kinds of things, but then you've got this endless tail, if E. coli is out there, that could give you a coliform test that would be non, it wouldn't really be indicative of what's really going on. You'd want to understand this peak of information. You know, that one E. coli out there is probably not going to make you sick, you know, unless I'm just licking it all the time and I happen to be licking that one, you know. But, so the typical microbial community, like we have this, this thought of it, is everything everywhere. So I can look at a hot spring in Yellowstone and find 10 kinds of things. I can look inside my own hot water heater at home and find the same 10 things. So why is it that I find microbes that live at high temperature in Yellowstone living at high temperature in my hot water heater? How'd they get there? It's because they're probably in the drinking water distribution system. And then everybody says, well, how does everything go everywhere? And I say, look up, because you've got atmospheric transport. Every time it rains, what's at the heart of every raindrop? There's some nucleation particle that formed the water droplet around the particle. It could be a clay. It could be a dust. It could be a pollutant. It could also be a microbe. You know, snowflakes would be a big transportation device for, you know, microbes. And so I look at the Earth as, you know, you look at the Earth as the lithosphere, the, the biosphere, the hydrosphere, the atmosphere, these different compartments of the Earth. I look at the whole thing as being an organism. The whole thing's alive. And it goes from the very high atmosphere all the way into the deep subsurface. And there's microbes living everywhere. And so then you've got to start thinking about how does that whole thing behave as an ecosystem? How does it behave as a community? How do we behave in that community? And that worries me for how we treat everything because if you treat something without understanding it, then we're going to screw it up. And, and that's, I think we've done that a lot. We have a history of that. So great question. And the question is, is, is if you see a rusty something, basically, what role does it serve or is it going to decay? Like Cornell builds a rusty building because the rust is an oxide and it's a protective coating. It could be better than a plastic because it's got this thick oxide on the outside of it that actually is going to slow down the, the further decay of the bare metal underneath it. So rust has a protective function. And so you could say, like, if you looked at my car, which is a truck, which is really old, which is mostly rust. <laughs> like I say, the rust has a nice protective function, right? The rust holds the car together. And, and then the, the, the building, you know, like bridges, like in Glenwood Canyon, the, the undergirders of those steel bridges that go through the Glenwood Canyon, those weren't finished. They're just rust. And then that's just a nice protective oxide. And is there still a biofilm down in there? Potentially, um, and the way you need to look at the, like that steel girder that's underneath a bridge is that life needs four things. It needs water, it needs a carbon source, it needs an electron donor, which is fuel, something to provide energy, and it needs an electron acceptor, which is something to breathe. And if you've got these rusty girders that are staying dry, they've got the microbes there don't have enough water. And so they're gonna grow slowly, or life in the slow lane. 
And maybe you got to think about water as not just snow or rain, but what about humidity and fog? And where we live here in dry environments, Cornell is a wet environment, you know? Um, so I would anticipate that, like, I don't know how thick the oxide would be on that. And it might be that there's some other um, impregnation in there of other things, too, but I don't know. Question over there. What you got? <laughs> that yeah, you just asked an awesome question. Um, so the question is: Is are there microbes in deep space, like on asteroids and stuff, or thereabouts? Right. So um, there's a whole subscience of environmental microbiology called astrobiology, and people are trying to think about life in space. So is there life on Mars? I say, yeah, we put it there, because Curiosity, the rover that's up there now. Um, you can sterilize those things to a limit, but you can't exactly get everything off of that. So there are bacteria that went along for the ride. Now then the question is, are there microbes on Mars? Are there microbes on asteroids that are floating around? And I think my answer would be, I don't know. And I think it's possible. As, as a biologist, I think it's totally possible. I think when I look up at night or you know, see stars, I don't think that life is just here. I don't think n equals one. I think n equals unknown for where life is on Earth, or you know, life is in the universe. Um, and that's like so. That's a great question. And to answer that question, so there's a friend of mine that works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, and his name is John Gratzinger, and he's the chief scientist for Curiosity, that's up there now, and the thing that John and I will talk about is all this stuff is intergenerational. So I could think about something today, and you could come along and think about it as a grad student or as a professor or somewhere in your career as a scientist 50 years from now, you're following up on something that John Grossinger started today. And that's kind of a fun thing to think about is how you answer these questions because you're trying to think about time and space and distance, and those things are all big numbers. And it requires more than um, my five-year grant proposal right now to solve that, right? <laughs> you know? Um, what we do know is that all the components for life, like water, carbon, electron donors, electron acceptors, they're all out there. All those things are on Mars. And I think that we're probably not going to find life on the surface of Mars, although if you watch news stories over the past couple of weeks, there was this mysterious rock that just appeared. Did anybody catch that? Yeah, so there was Curiosity had this image of the soil surface right by it, and suddenly it took another image, like I think it was 10 days later, and there was this round donut rock there that wasn't there before. It's like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> and I think somebody ran over and stuck it there and ran back, right? <laughs> like Marvin the Martian. But that's probably not, not the case, right? I think there's stuff on the subsurface, and that's where we got to look. Yeah, so they have, uh, the question is, is, life that's on Earth now, could it survive in space? The Apollo moonshots, those um, machines were, um, they had microbiologists involved in the Apollo project, and they would wipe down the outside of a spacecraft before it went up and see who grows, and they would wipe it down when it came back and see who grew. And so they were able to shoot microbes to the moon and back, and it survived no problem. 
life is pretty robust for what it can do, particularly the microbial life. Great questions. I Great question. So do stromatolites in Yellowstone uh, indicate or, or record extinction events? And could you, so one thing that we think the stromatolites in Yellowstone do in a weird sort of way, and we haven't actually published this, but we think that it tracks seismic activity. So we can, we can get growth that's pretty much falls spot on to the seismic record of Yellowstone. So every time there's an earthquake, the spring level changes, and every time the spring level changes, the microbes stand up or lie down. And so could you record that in the stromatolite? And, and I think it's possible, but we haven't gone there yet. But that's a great question. Yeah? What you got? What's news in geohydrothermals at the bottom of the ocean? Do we have, is anything new coming out of that lately? Yeah, great question. So what's news in the geohydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean? Much of what we do in Yellowstone pertains to the oceans. It, but we can drive up to it rather than take Alvin out to it, which costs a lot more money when you're in the oceans. Um, but a lot of what we do applies to the vents. And what's amazing about the vents um, in the oceans is they're probably hydrogen-driven or hydrogen-sulfide-driven. And so life is happening at relatively high temperature, and it's happening at high temperature with, you know, that's all chemosynthetic lifestyle down there, right? No photosynthesis happening. Um, but it's probably proportional to the hydrogen concentration, which supplies the fuel for that, you know? And then the big thing right now we're thinking about is elemental cycling um, and, and how elements cycle on Earth. Like every element in the periodic table probably has a biological component somewhere in its cycle. And a lot of that work's coming out of the vents. So like manganese that comes up off of the Loihi Seamount, which is on the east side of Hawaii, um, you can track manganese cycling and how the manganese cycles with microbes and where those microbes live in the water column on the sediment surface of the bottom and then in the subsurface below. And you get into this biologically induced manganese cycling that's happening at a vent. And that's kind of exciting because it could be happening in other places. So I think the things to watch out for for vents are elemental cycling and then uh, novel kinds of organisms. We have a new kind of bacteria that's coming out of our lab called OP9. And OP9 was found in obsidian pool in Yellowstone National Park. It was found in a hot spring. But we were working on a, on a site from off the coast of Baja, California. And um, OP9 might be a methanogen. It's a bacterium that makes methane. And right now, the only known methanogens are archaea. So no one's ever found a, a bacterium that makes methane. We think OP9 might do that. I just gave you a scoop, but we don't know if but we don't know if it's true or not. We have no idea, and we're not going to know probably for another year. And and to to tease that out, like we were talking about genomics at the break, you know, we sequence all this stuff, and there's all this what we call DNA dark matter. It's unknown. It's DNA of unknown function, and what it's doing, and and because you can say, well, that gene makes you know your iris blue. You know, and there are some genes you know, and there's a lot of genes you don't know. Um, but there's in vivo and in vitro biology. The the big thing right now for for all of biology is in silico, 
And in silico is microprocessing, right? So we're processing all this information on computers. And, and our term for it's in silico biology. And in silico biology, you know, because it's silicon chips, right? And silico biology is going to define a lot of where all this goes. And so um, one thing we pay attention to is we kind of geek out on what are the best Intel chips right now, how many floating point operations are possible per second, um, because we want to process DNA sequence quicker. And so um, we can't buy machines that are fast enough, so we, we farm out to like the Amazon cloud. And Amazon Cloud is there to deliver your package of five pounds or less by quadcopter soon, right? You know? Um, but, but their com computational horsepower, Google, Amazon, and Apple is all huge, and they sell that to us. And so we can upload a data set, let it go nuts on Amazon for an hour or two hours, and then we download the data back, and it costs $1.40. Wow. And so, you know, that's great, you know? Um, that's all kind of changing. That was a long-winded answer to your. No. Oh, what's changing is the amount and the speed for. A, yeah, correct. So back to the fish, you mentioned something about microbial protein not being smaller fish than uh, you know supplementing it with other types of protein. I thought protein was protein. What's so protein, so the question is, is uh, microbial biomass making smaller fish as opposed to a larger fish? And the reason for that is, is because protein isn't just protein because of its building blocks. So proteins have approximately 20 amino acids, and a couple of those amino acids are required for life. Um, if you eat animal protein, you're getting all of the amino acids, the essential amino acids, and all the amino acids required to build protein in your own body. If you're a vegetarian, you're being careful to mix your protein sources because corn is deficient in one essential amino acid. Or I guess I should say old corn before it was genetically modified to be new corn. Um, so essential amino acids and maybe single cell protein lacks enough of one percentage of single cell or you know essential amino acid to make a complete protein. So that's why it's important to have protein from different sources is the bottom line. Great, great, great question. So what about pink snow in the mountains? So pink snow, um, as opposed to yellow snow, because you knew I was going to say that, because <laughs> I'm all about bodily functions. Um, pink snow is caused by an algae. And it's a round algae. And when you look at it in the microscope, I go, I go like this, because to me, it's huge. It's about 100 microns across. I'm used to looking at things that are one by three microns. So about one one-hundredth diameter of a human hair is what I'm used to. The pink algae are about as big as a human hair. I mean, in terms of diameter, cross-cut of your hair. And are they globally transported? Yes. They tend to come out. They're, they're probably there all year long. They tend to come out in the spring when it gets warmer and the light is right. And so they actually, it's not so much temperature, it's the aspect of the light. So when the sun comes up above the horizon to a certain degree, they'll turn on at a certain degree of light activity when they get X number of hours of that kind of light per day. And then if you ever go to pink snow, have you ever walked across it or been near it? It smells like watermelons. And they, they talk to each other in this phenomenon that's called quorum sensing. 
quorum sensing is how organisms talk to each other to know that there are enough things present to have a viable active community. And the smell of watermelon to the algae is a signaling compound. So when yeah, it's like a pheromone between moths. And so the pink algae is watermelon snow. And that watermelon smell is a communication device. And then you'll see a whole ridge go pink, like within a day, right? And that's what it does. And it's, but it's a snow algae. And they're beautiful. No, so there are yellow algaes, brown. There are some green snow algae as well, but the pink ones tend to thrive. Yeah. What's that? Uh, I wasn't prepared for that, but yeah. Yeah. Can you eat pink snow? Oh, so great question. Can you eat, can you eat pink snow? Uh, so the watermelon, the water, can you eat pink snow? I would say definitely not. And the reason is, is because the algae, like a lot of algae, secrete an endotoxin. And so you can actually digest the algae fine, like it was lettuce, you know, or a carrot. But the endotoxins that's there just tears the shit out of your guts. I mean, it just, it'll, it, yeah, it's not good. So the endotoxin is really disturbing to, to your gut. And, and you can imagine what that would do for you. So stay away from pink snow. Don't eat it. Now, if, if I just ate white snow and there was a single pink algal cell in there, it's probably not going to bother me, you know? So Exactly. Same, same E. coli pathogen out there. Same sort of thing. It's there, but it's not there in a high abundance. Yeah. I might have said that. All right, should we wrap it? Thank you very much.